Welcome back to Two Keto Dudes. This is Carl Franklin from Connecticut in the United States. And in February 2016, I put myself on a ketogenic diet to take control of my metabolism. In just two and a half months, I managed to reverse all my markers of type 2 diabetes with diet alone. As of now, I'm 80 pounds lighter with no signs of diabetes or heart disease. Hi, I'm Richard Morris in Canberra, Australia. I've been on a ketogenic diet since April 2014. When I started, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes, and within six months of starting a ketogenic diet, all of my biomarkers of disease had disappeared. I've lost about 100 pounds. I've completely turned my health around. And this show is a document of our experiences thriving for years in ketosis. Yeah, and reversing our diabetes. Yep. And hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking. Yeah, we're not doctors. We don't want to give anyone any medical advice, but we are keen to share our own experiences. We're actually both software developers, so we're not afraid of a little technical detail, are we, Carl? No way, no how. Yeah, Carl never reads the manuals. (laughs) We have done some research into our own deranged metabolisms and the science behind them, and we share some studies that we found in the show notes. And you'll probably work out pretty quickly that we're both foodies. Yep. We love to cook. And we love Mm. to eat. Mm. In every episode, we both share a keto recipe that cannot be ignored. So please don't even try. (laughs) So let's start podcast number 125, Sitting Down with Carrie Brown, part one of two. So Richard, do we have any apologies or corrections from last week's show? Yeah, that was 124, Catherine Cross on insulin and Dr. Joseph Kraft. Um, The only thing I have to declare about that episode is I totally enjoyed our chat, uh, despite losing my voice during the process of it. Uh, But look, you know the drill. If you hear anything that we got wrong, just let us know. Absolutely. So let's revisit what a ketogenic diet is. Mm -hmm. Ketogenic diet is any diet that puts you in a state of nutritional ketosis where you're burning Mm -hmm. fat for your primary fuel source Mm -hmm. and uh, your liver makes all the glucose that you need for your your brain, your eyes and other organs and cells that need it. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that the way that we did it is by eating 20 grams of carbohydrates or less every day. Less is better, of course. Yeah, and carbohydrates are sugar and starch. Right. You don't want to eat any sugar and starch, really, but get your carbohydrates from green leafy vegetables, maybe some nuts, that kind of thing. Protein is moderate on a ketogenic diet. And what we did is one to one and a half grams of protein for every kilogram of lean body mass. Yeah. To give you an idea what that is, uh, my uh, my body weight is 100 kilograms. Uh, My lean mass is around 80 kilograms. And I eat roughly between 80 and 120 grams of protein a day. Yeah, there you go. And all of our energy we get from fat. Fat. (laughs) (laughs) The fat on our plate or the fat in our bodies. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's what we did. That's what we do. That's what we do here on Two Keto Dudes. So, Richard, how was your week, sir? Yeah, it's been pretty hectic. I've been preparing for traveling to Keto Fest. Um, I'm going to be getting on a plane around 10 a.m. on Friday, Keto Fest Central Time. <laughs> and well, I've got to do the time zone conversion. So Keto mm. Fest Central Time around 10 a.m. on Friday, and I'm arriving on a train into New London around 10 p.m. on Sunday night for roughly 50, 60 hours of travel. That's crazy. Uh, I know. I expect, to, I expect to have to sleep for a day just to recover from it. Yeah, yeah I bet. Well, I can't wait. Keto Fest is mm. right around the corner. This is crazy. They've been playing yeah. our ads on the radio, and David yeah. Wu's got a big sign outside Simply Pharmacy. There's a billboard on the other side of the world with my face on it. 
It's the weirdest thing. That's <laughs> great. So, the other thing I've done this week is I've been talking to said, secret conversations with um, a venue in Canberra for a potential keto event later this year. And yeah. I'm going to talk more about that at Keto Fest, but yeah. Yep. We hinted at that in the last episode and, and it's, it looks like it's going to happen. Well, we hope there, anyway. There will be truffles involved. That's the plan. <laughs> <laughs> so how how is your week, huh? Well, it's been a little crazy here. Got our garage cleaned out and we're putting mm. together lawn furniture and um, just, uh, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's of Keto Fest. We have yeah. spectacular help this year from volunteers and got a big shout out right here to Louise Reynolds and Andrew Skate yeah. for organizing all these volunteers. Uh, it's just absolutely awesome this year. Yeah to be able to count on people to do the jobs that we were doing ourselves last year. Well, you know, last year there was a, a reservoir of goodwill that we were able to rely on. So we had a lot of volunteers who helped us last year. Yeah. But this year we've, we've got some planning up front. We know exactly how many volunteers we've got. We know exactly what kind of jobs we need. Mm. And uh, people are all uh, putting their hand up to help us out. So yep. we're very grateful. Excellent. So uh, another thing that I've been doing is following a 42-hour fasting regimen. Oh, yeah. Which means that you eat every other day mm-hmm. one you know for in a six hour window and i've been doing that for a week and for me i've always struggled with long fasts because i tend to overdo it when i start eating again and it, it's hard to mm. get back into it you know yeah this is something that i can actually do and mm. uh i i feel like i can sustain this for a long 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 time so i just wanted to uh let everybody know that that's what i'm doing lately that's outstanding. So hopefully, uh, in a couple of months, you'll be able to report back on the results and uh, yes, and let us know how you know because it's one of these things. Yeah, you know, a, a result that you get just one day of doing it, yeah. um, is is just a, a one data point. But when you've got you know a, an extended period of time and you can actually um, uh, track and using rolling averages and everything, then yep. you get to see see a real benefit. So that's awesome. Yeah, it's been good for the week. Um, you mm. know, it's a slow and steady weight loss and of course hunger yeah. is under control and mm. uh, my meals are great and I don't have to worry about it um, I don't have mm. to eat pork belly every day that's kind of a burden <laughs> on everybody around me uh, so anyway that's it let's uh, let's give away some swag Richard yeah let's do that every show we pick a lucky winner at random from the members of the two kilo dudes fan club yes and today we're giving away a treasure trove of stuff from vendors we like all of which you can find at fanclub.2keto.com so, who's our winner this week? Today's winner is John Gillenwater. Congratulations, John. Yeah. Let's tell everybody what John has won. Sure. Well, the first thing we're giving away is a two keto dudes coffee mug that says keep calm and keto on. Nice. And a signed copy of Lies My Doctor Told Me by Dr. Ken Berry. And a bottle of Stevia Sweet Barbecue Sauce. And this was developed by a barbecue restaurant owner who plans to change the restaurant industry forever. The sauce is full flavored and only one gram of sugar with two carbs per serving. Yeah, we looked into the sauce and it turns out that one gram of sugar uh, comes from the Worcestershire sauce that they use. Uh, it's not a primary ingredient. Yep. So we spoke to the people who made the, the sauce and they'd tried multiple alternative ingredients and weren't able to find an alternative that tasted just right. So they used the mm. least amount of Worcestershire sauce that they could get to get the taste right. Um, yeah. I don't myself generally need barbecue sauce on food, uh, but it, certainly if I had a teenager complaining that they weren't able to use regular barbecue sauce, I would not hesitate because yeah. 
Have you seen how much sugar is in regular barbecue sauce? It's like 60% sugar. So, you know, a one-litre bottle of – this is something Peter Brookner told us. A one-litre bottle of barbecue sauce has got like 600 grams of sugar. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So, as we said before, there is room in the keto community for products like this. Yeah. Rayo's tomato sauce comes to mind. That's three Mm. grams of sugar per half cup. And if you're going to use a little of it for chicken parm or Carl's Head pizza, you just have to know how it affects you. Um, yeah. I really like a little of this sauce when I get a barbecue Jones. Uh, it's mm. also going to be available at Keto Fest at the Pig Roast and at RD86 right. on Saturday night. Nice. So what else we got in the basket? We've also got a cheese making kit from Pamela Zorn. Yes, that's right. So you can make your own mozzarella cheese with this. Mm. And we're putting one of these kits in every Keto Fest attendee bag too. Yeah, and Pamela is going to be showing people how to make cheese at Keto Fest. So that's right. So there'll be cheese making demonstrations, which will be awesome. Yeah. And if you don't want to wait to win some swag, you can always buy all sorts of it online at gear.2keto.com. Right. And that brings us squarely to a segment we call... (laughs) What you got, Cal? Uh, This came from Todd Gamble, and this is on the forum at the Great Big Public Keto Before and After Thread, which you can read at success.2keto.com. And Todd says he was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes almost two years ago. I had to do something different after a new medication made me sick. So my wife and I started keto, and here are my labs before starting on this wondrous journey. So on August 15th, 2016, ironically Mm -hmm. his 54th birthday, Mm -hmm. my HbA1c was Mm 7.1, my HDL was 34, and my triglycerides were 101. Right. Yeah. So his triglycerides over HDL is roughly 3. Right. You know, you want to be under two, right? And of course, your HbA1c, you want to get under 5.9 sort of thing. So then he says, four months later, he was getting close to being non-diabetic. He was off insulin and blood pressure medication, still taking metformin 1,000 milligrams twice a day. So after eight months on keto, his A1c is 5.1, his HDL is 62, and his triglycerides are 51. Wow. So his trigs over HDL are less than one. Outstanding. Yeah. What a change he's made. What a change. And after those mm. labs, uh, his medication dropped metformin to 500 milligrams twice a day, off insulin, and blood pressure medication. Nice. And after 22 months on keto, his A1C is 5.2, his HDL is mm-hmm. 54, triglycerides 42. So he's able to keep it up. So that's outstanding. Well done. 22 months. Yeah, he says, decided to keep taking metformin 500 milligrams twice a day for now, Mm -hmm. just afraid to be off of it for six months as the insurance will only pay for labs every six months. Yeah. Metformin, however, is pretty kidney protective and it costs me Mm -hmm. nothing with insurance. He says- It costs the insurance company very little too because it's like four cents a pill. Right. He says, if you are new to keto, do not be worried about eating so much fat. My triglycerides have continued to decrease each time I have my labs drawn. You may have a slight bump at first as your cells release all that stored fat, but you will soon equalize and begin to see your triglycerides plummet. Well That's done. because you're using them. Yeah, well done. Yeah. So I've got one here from Ashley on, on Facebook, and Ashley says, I've been going consistent keto for over a month now. Mm-hmm. I dropped 15 almost instantaneously, like in two weeks. That's 15 pounds. Yep. And since then, I bounced back and forth between 225 and 220. I went through intense keto flu, um, but I'm still testing for ketones. I'm getting large mm. amounts, and I thought by now I would be adapted. What's possibly going on? 
Huh. Okay. So my response is really that you you probably mostly adapted after a month. Yeah. You're probably 90, 95% of the way there. You will get better in smaller increments over the next five months. And Jeff Volek was able to see people six months after going keto uh, mm. still having minor improvements amongst his athletes. Um, anyway, the weight that uh, Ashley lost at the beginning was most likely just an accounting change that happens when we switch from glucose burning to fat burning. Mm. And you see this sometimes referred to as water weight, but it's just that you're, you're no longer storing about half a pound of glucose with roughly three pounds of water. Uh, as soon as you go on to from glucose burning to fat burning, you get rid of that storage and you lose, you know, three or four pounds easy. Right. So, once you're fat adapted, you want to eat to satiety, which should happen earlier because you have more access to body fat when insulin is low. And yeah. on a ketogenic diet, insulin should be low. Most people lose, you know, half a pound to a pound a week until they get to a new homeostasis. And it's sometimes called a plateau. And this is the point that your body settles on as its Goldilocks weight, not right. too little body fat, not too much. Yeah. Um, so what's causing that plateau could be a bunch of things. Maybe carbs are creeping into your diet. Maybe you're eating satiety and then eating a little more. Maybe your stress hormones are driving circulating glucose high. Maybe you're short on sleep. There's a lot of things that can affect how much body weight your body feels comfortable carrying. Well, we also had said before that this equilibrium happens when the amount of body fat that you have is barely enough to fuel your body. Because the yeah. the few, the less amount of body fat you have, the less is available to burn every hour for fuel. And so you have to eat more fat. But if you eat as much protein as you do fat, now you may be driving up your insulin and that kind of thing. A lot of people um, lose a lot of weight very quickly, but not everybody does. A diabetic yeah. who loses 100 pounds before they plateau, that's mm. because when they were diabetic, they were so metabolically deranged from the constant bath of insulin that their bodies held on to 100 pounds too much energy. And that's, yeah. that's why some people lose 100 pounds. Some people only lose 20 pounds before they hit the plateau. My advice is really keep calm and keto on. Your body will hopefully get comfortable and decide it doesn't need as much stored energy after all. Yeah. And that's what we do. We keep calm, we keto on. <laughs> all right. Let's uh, roll a previously recorded interview, part one of two, that we did with Carrie Brown. This is where she talks about her experiences uh, in battling uh, mental health issues. I'm here at Pwop Studios with the one and only Carrie Brown from Keto Evangelist Kitchen Podcast. And uh, hi, Carrie. You're, you're a neighbor now. Hello. I am. And I'm very excited to be a neighbor. You, so tell me your story about moving here. Moving here. So I had never been to New England or or Connecticut or anywhere over here, really. I'd been to New York on business a few times, but otherwise um, I'd spent 17 years on the West Coast in Seattle. And um, the lady who designs the covers for my cookbooks she lives in new fairfield connecticut mm. over on the west coast of, of connecticut there yep and um she said to me hey why don't you come to connecticut and eat turkey with us on thanksgiving yeah and i have no job i was let go from my uh my job last year yeah and i have no family so i'm like why not because i had no restrictions no and dogs i have cats but <laughs> okay. but but i have a, a, a what i had a, a wonderful house sitter who loved my cats almost as much as me nice um so i hopped on a plane and came to eat, eat turkey while i was here i 
looked at house prices just randomly because the houses were all enormous and they all seemed to be on acres and acres of land. And I was just like, like you people must all be crazy rich to be able to buy these houses. The funny thing is it's all relative because go to Mississippi if you want to see cheap. Right. Go to Georgia. But but for me, so I I said to Rekka, my cover designer, I said, okay, you, you can not answer me if it's rude, but like, what is this house worth? And because she has this enormous house on five acres of land with a lake and all the things. And she said, um, and she gave me a number and I'm like, wait, aren't you missing a one off the front of that? <laughs> Zero or something. And she said, she said uh, no. So I pulled out, you know, my Mac and got on Zillow and I started looking at houses and I was like, I mean, I literally couldn't believe what I was looking at. So the next day I got in the car and with my laptop and I just drove around looking at the houses that were for sale on Zillow and I couldn't get in because I didn't have a realtor, but I was just looking at them and peeking in the windows because a lot of them were, were empty. Right. And I was like, okay, this is madness. And I, I, I had a good idea of what my house in Seattle was worth. And I, so I did some math and, and, and thought about it for a couple of days. And I'm like, if I move to Connecticut, I can pay off my mortgage 24 years early and be debt free just by moving away from the West Coast. So I blame so, the turkey. Right. It's all the turkey's fault. Right. And and now I have a herd of wild turkeys of my own. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I flew back home at the end of November and put my house on the market. Actually, I waited till January because nobody buys houses in December. Right. Um, put my house on the market in mid-January. Sold in three days for wow. $18,000 over list. Wow. Um, packed everything up, packed the ki- the kitties up. And uh, then I drove across the top of America in the middle of winter to Connecticut. And um, having paid off my mortgage and didn't need a mortgage because of the ridiculousness of the house situation in Seattle. Well, I that's was, a great story. Usually it's the, <laughs> I'm hearing it from the other perspective. Like, you know, houses are too expensive in Connecticut. We're going to Florida or something like that, which a lot of my friends have done. Yeah, no. I yeah. So I was able with the equity from the crazy house market in Seattle, right. I was able to pay off my mortgage and then buy my home here in Connecticut for cash, which means obviously that the the pressure to generate revenue is just nowhere near what it was. And she didn't go to Las Vegas, Richard. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, I'm just thinking, I did the same thing when I left Las Vegas. Uh, we were like the last house sold before the property market halved. And so we just squirted out of Las Vegas like a like a pip out of an orange, and uh, we went back to <laughs> we went back to Australia, cashed up. And it was only it was pure luck, you know, that that we just happened to leave at the time that we did, hmm. um, and we were able to find a nice place in Batemans Bay, uh, a fraction of the price, and own it outright. So it really does, you know, if you have the kind of career where you can work anywhere in the world, it does uh, behoove you to uh, to t- to take advantage of that. Yeah, and I was lucky because I don't have I don't have any of the constraints that normal people have. As I say, I lost my job, so I didn't have a job that was location specific, um, and I don't have family. So yes, there's people I love that are still in Seattle, but you know, there's planes. Yeah, and, <laughs> and we can fly and see each other. And for you know, for I could fly back to Seattle once a month and still be like twenty seven hundred dollars up 
on what I would be if I was still in Seattle paying a mortgage. So, well, welcome to Connecticut. It's great to have you as a neighbor. <laughs> Thank you. I, I'm really interested in talking to you about your area of expertise or your experience. Yeah, and I'm sure that everybody wants to hear that story as well. So I assume you're referring to my mental health status. Yeah, it's important work. <laughs> so one of the reasons that I, after I was laid off, one of the reasons I didn't want to particularly pursue a regular day job was because I'm on a mission to help people who struggle with mental health issues. And the reason for that is that I was diagnosed I've struggled with depression my entire life. I don't know anything different, or I didn't know anything different. I was born depressed, and that had just always been this dark cloud over over my whole life. I didn't understand it. I didn't understand why I felt that way. I didn't understand why I behaved the way I did, and nor did anybody else. And to them, I was just a pain in the butt. Um you know, I, I spent my entire childhood being told to get over it or snap out of it or to, you know, just stop being a pain. And I knew there was something that wasn't right, but I didn't know what. So I've spent my whole life trying to figure out what in the world was wrong with me, why I thought the way I did, why I never found joy in anything. And it all came. And so over the years, I was put on various antidepressants. Um, Some of them gave me a little bit of relief. Most of them didn't. Some of them made me violent. Some of them made me comatose. Some of them um, put me into 24 by 7 panic attacks. I mean, it was just, you know, and, and after a while, I just quit all the medications because it felt like the side effects were worse than than just living with the depression. And um, so that's what I did for a long time. I just sucked it up. I put on a game face. I pretended that all was well with the world. But that was just my way of surviving without constantly having people tell me to suck it up or get over myself or, you know, whatever other phrases that they use because they don't understand what it's like to have depression. People are much better at understanding things like diabetes and broken legs and and they give all sorts of allowances for those diseases. But when it comes to mental health, we're really, really bad at one, recognizing it and two, uh, accepting that it's something that people who suffer from it have no more control over than someone who has diabetes or a broken leg or, you know, something else like that. Actually, you might be surprised with diabetes. I mean, there's a distinction between type 1 and type 2 diabetes. As a type 2 diabetic, I often hear, oh, well, you've got the type of diabetes that you do to yourself, don't you? You know, it's not not, uh, the poor juvenile diabetics with type 1 diabetes who are blameless, but, you know, you you overate, you, you know. And you've done it to yourself. And in fact, you know, somebody who's diabetic, type 2 diabetic and obese and, and uh, has metabolic syndrome, it indeed has exactly the same kind of problems. That they're, they're, uh, they're unable to control this. Their, their body is, is, is veering in a, in, a, in a direction that they're, they're out of control with. So, uh, right. They've been told I, 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 yeah. they have no control, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, most of my life, went on. I was actually in a massive amount of emotional and, and psychological pain, but I had to hide it. 
because there, and there is still a huge stigma with mental health now, but back then, you know, 20 years ago, it was just like, you never talked about it. If you were in therapy, you, you know, you didn't talk about that. Nobody talked about having a therapist. All the things you did to try and resolve it were were not something that you ever talked about publicly. There was just no support or understanding for it. But it, it came to a head in, so five years ago, in, in 2013, I had, uh, I had a mental break. I ended up in handcuffs, under armed guard, in the hospital, um, after my- I call that Saturday night in <laughs> Da Nang. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So, uh, just an interesting aside that I have I have never been handcuffed until I moved to America, <laughs> and since I've been in America, I've been handcuffed three times. I've never been arrested, but I've been in handcuffs three times, and every time was as a result of of my mental health status, yeah. that things that wow. I had no control over. Um, anyway, the last time I ended up in handcuffs, I was actually handcuffed to a gurney by six cops, two paramedics, and and ended up in the ER under armed guard because wow. I'd had a mental break. And that was the worst nine hours of my life. And I was, uh, I was three seconds away from being committed wow. because in, in Washington state, there there is a law that says that, well, one committing suicide is illegal so you just can't do that um and and also they have the right to commit somebody who they believe is a danger to themselves or others and i was three seconds away from being committed now that that would have been two weeks what happened in those three seconds um, an Oscar-worthy performance <laughs> yeah. by me when I realized. So I'd been in the hospital for nine hours. Um, I was in absolutely my brain. I mean, I thought I was losing my mind. And because I have no family, nobody knew I was there. I had no way of contacting any of my friends. I had no phone. Of course, they take your medications away, which is disastrous in some cases. Um, and so I was just laying there alone, locked up for nine hours, just uh, trying to figure out what in the world was going on. Um, this was as a result, my therapist called the police because uh, he and I had had a phone call and I said, I'm done with this. I just, I can't do this anymore. I've been struggling my whole life and I just, I just don't have the energy for it anymore. I can't do it. So that's why the police came to my house in the first place. Um Luckily for me, the in King County, uh, Washington, where I lived, the there there is an assessor that has to come to the hospital and assess you before you can be committed. And they told me that that's the, so it it became I was being belligerent, and it became a involuntary situation mm. at which point all the laws are on the the state side not the patient side but luckily for me it took the assessor 5 hours to get to the hospital probably because this was in the middle of the night when all this happened um and so in that 5 hours th- there was a big enough part of my brain the the intellect part realized what was going to happen if I couldn't persuade this 
this assessor that I was not a harm to myself or anyone else. Wow. And and so by the time she came, five hours later, I had actually like talked myself into being able to convince her that I would be okay. That was the only reason I got out of the hospital without being committed. And something must have switched on um, into doing more research or something at that moment. Was that a was that an aha moment or did you just get by yourself some time? It bought me some time. One of the things, they didn't commit me, but I was released from the hospital on the basis that I was required to see a get a psychiatrist. I'd been in psychotherapy for years because, you know, I didn't know what else to do. I was required to get a, a psychiatric evaluation and so two weeks after that, I was diagnosed with bipolar 2 disorder. And thereafter followed like this merry-go-round of psychiatrists and doctors and medications while they tried to figure out something to stabilize me so that I could function in the world and not kill myself. Uh, that took a while. The first uh, thing they put me on, and I don't remember which it was, but the first thing they put me on, I was literally comatose for two weeks. So they tried wow. something else and they tried something else. And eventually they found something that uh, stabilized me just enough so that I could function. Um, and I'm a single girl. So, you know, no one else was paying my bills or putting a roof over my head. So, I mean, it was kind of important that we got me to the point where I could at least like go to work and and provide for myself. Um, but nine months after my mental break, despite being on medication, I became suicidal. And I was suicidal for eight months straight. Every wow. every waking moment I well, there was this voice in my head trying to kill me. Wow. If I was awake, it was there going it would be so easy. Just the pain will stop. Just, just, you know, do this or do that or yeah, whatever. It was, mm -hmm. it was, it was maddening and it was literally crazy making. Mm -hmm. So I, after eight months, I got really, really, I just got fed up with it. And I realized I was going to see a psychiatrist every week for half an hour because that was what was required and spending $300 every week for half an hour. Mm. And all that was happening was that I'm a, I'm a deep thinker. So I would think all week and then I'd go in and I'd say, Hey, I've been thinking about this. You know, what do you think about trying that? Or what do you think about doing this? And, and my psychiatrist would say, that's a great idea. Let's do that. And and after a few weeks of this, I'm like, wait, what? Like, I you get the I, feeling he wait, has no idea what he's doing, right? right? Yeah. And I yeah. actually call I actually called him out. I said, psychiatrists don't actually know what you're doing, do you? And he said, no. He said, we don't. He said, you, you know, you, you, you show up with symptoms. We label you and put you in a box with other people that have those similar symptoms. So that's why you're labeled bipolar two. I mean, bipolar 2 is not a thing. That's just the label we give you because we try and categorize everybody to make it easier for us to try right. and help you. And then, then, then we look at the box and we say, okay, for a lot of people in this box, this drug has helped you. So we'll try you on that and see what happens. Right. And if that doesn't help, then we'll try you on something else and then we'll try you on something else. And and he he agreed with me that, that psychiatry is just they don't, 
actually know what they're doing. It's just a lot of trial and error. Um, is manic depression an older word for bipolar? Yes. It's the same thing? Yes. Okay. Yeah. But you have peaks and valleys, right? So so now they've they've further categorized uh, what was manic depression. In, there's lots of different versions. So there's bipolar one and two, which are the main categories. Bipolar one is where you're more manic and less depressed. Okay. I'm very thankful that I have bipolar 2, which is less manic and more depressed. So You're more thankful for that. Oh, oh my goodness. I because bipolar 1, I, I can't even imagine what it's like. For those those are the people who you read about in the news. Those are the people who end up in jail or, you know, wrapping their car around a tree or, you know, all of the, end up with $50,000 in debt from one weekend shopping spree. The, the bipolar one people are those poor folks that are in mania a lot of the time, mm. mania that makes you do really crazy law-breaking things. Okay. Um, and I'm not that. I am, I am bipolar two, which is a lot more depression. And I don't get mania. In it's, the same way. You know, it's interesting when you say mania, My, m I had a misconception about that. I thought about the high parts of uh, bipolar being just feeling good. But so what for you're me, saying is it's like, you know, you're, you're kind of over the top. So that's bipolar one. But yeah. for me, mm. bipolar two, we don't get mania. We get what they call hypomania. And for me, hypomania, my hypermanic episodes were awesome. So, because I became incredibly focused and incredibly productive. So, I would write a cookbook in five weeks. I mean, I, so for me, right. my periods of hypermania were fantastic. Productive, right. right. Super. I loved the hypermania. It was you awesome. You weren't going to Vegas for the weekend and <laughs> No. So, the bipolar poker. ones go to Vegas for the weekend oh, and, and, and run up $50,000 of debt and have sex with everything that moves and or sits still long enough and, <laughs> and drive 90 in a 30 yeah. and just are outrageous. The things you read about on the news. Okay. So, that's the difference between the two. And then there's also... There's rapping, rapid cycling bipolar, where you switch between the two very, very quickly. Mm. There's, so they've recategorized into more. Uh, it's more not buckets. just manic depressive now. But I, I came to the conclusion that nobody was thinking critically about this except me. I was the only one that was sitting there going, why do I have bipolar? Right. Like, what's causing this? Right. What's causing it? Nobody was asking that. Nobody was trying to fix, find out and fix the problem. They were all just trying to drug me to make my behavior acceptable to myself and others. You may have had the best position with which to observe uh, the syndrome because um, you're inside it. I mean, that, that might have given right. you an advantage uh, uh, position and and you're right, Richard. But the problem is with mental health issues. Uh, we're all sitting there trying to to explain ourselves, but everybody's already written us off as crazy, mm -hmm. right? So we just don't even get listened to because it's just like, well, you're crazy. And it, it, do you find that people in charge, you know, the professionals and whatever, 
don't think about causes because they don't think there's anything they they can do about it. So I think there's a general con- a general consensus of opinion that mental health issues are what they are. There's nothing you can do about it. And and I but I just didn't accept that mm. because I was like something made me bipolar. I mean, it's not, you know, so there's something. What was it? Right. Was was it genetic? Was it environmental? Was there some crazy chemical that I was allergic to that was making me nuts? Was it food? Was it the fact that my father was manic depressive? I mean, like, why, why what caused it? So, at that point, I got mad and I fired everybody, all my doctors, <laughs> the, the, the psychiatrists, uh, literally everybody got they, fired. They did that. <laughs> <laughs> and I took myself off everything because I was like, well, I'm suicidal on the drugs, so I may as well be suicidal off them because at least then I'm not pumping my body full of more chemicals right. that are, are having side effects. Right. Mm. So then I started and I thought of, of all the variables, the, the thing that is least variable is genetics. So I sure. started with DNA. I'm like, I want to find out if there's something on my DNA that that I was born this way, and so I I spit in a tube and sent my my uh, spit off to Twenty Three and Me, and I got my DNA file back, and um, I ran it through some online tools which just make it more readable, and I found out that the there were lots of things, but the big thing I found out was that I have the MTHFR variant mutation. MTHFR mutation is something that the the people who know about these things think that about a third of the population have this mutation. Mm. That doesn't mean that a third of the population are expressing it right. or are expressing it in the same way as it shows up for me. But mm-hmm. it it if you if you do any research into MTHFR, you'll know that it is implicated in into a horrifyingly huge list of diseases and symptoms. So there was that. I also discovered from my DNA that I have a genetic intolerance to gluten. I'm not celiac, but I do have Mm. a genetic intolerance to gluten. My naturopath tells me that in people like me, gluten actually attacks your brain. Wow. I, I also found out that I my dopamine and serotonin pathways are broken genetically in about 40 places. Whoa. So, you know, oh, and I also have a an ill, and this is very common with MTHFR, I am not able to detoxify like normal people. Right. So if you add all of those things up, it was absolutely no surprise that I've been depressed my whole life and that at mm. some point my brain was going to go sideways somehow. It was going to manifest itself. Right. Now, I don't know what triggered the break five years ago, but it had been brewing my whole life. Sure. And, and, and for those who don't understand genetics, the from what I know, the, the genes themselves aren't the cause of something. They make you more susceptible to... Yeah. I mean, right. it's an observation that people who have these symptoms and problems all have these same genes switched on. Right. Yeah. So that w- was a huge thing for me. And it, it, it like just knowing that probably it was mostly genetic changed everything because yeah. then I'm not crazy. Then uh-huh. I'm not a pain in the ass. Then <laughs> I'm not. And this is not something I can can control of course 
once I got the the knowledge from my DNA, then I could start to figure out what I needed to to tweak to to get out of my life or add yeah. to my life to kind of switch that gene off or at least quieten it down to actually stop the things happening rather than just putting a Band-Aid on the symptoms. So getting the DNA report was magical because it it told me that it wasn't me. It was an objective an objective diagnostic that that's showing you where the problems are like. Right. Right. Mm. So um and at the, at about the same time cuz I'd fired everybody so I got my DNA mm. and then I bumped into a doctor on Twitter and um we behind behind the scenes we started chatting because I had my DNA and I asked him if he knew anything about DNA. He was right close to me. He was eleven miles from where I am, and um, he said he thought he could help me with my bipolar. And so I went to see him, and he put me on a ketogenic diet. He said, and he, he, the basis for doing that was uh, the ketogenic diet was developed to help children with seizures and and epilepsy right now the 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 antidepressant i was on at the time was lamotrigine which is actually an anti-seizure medication Mm. that was the one that had been working the best out of all of them so he said to me he said it made sense to him that if the ketogenic diet worked to help people with seizures that it might help me because the medication that worked best for me was an anti-seizure medication interesting so he put me on the ketogenic diet. Had you heard of it before? Yes, I'd heard of it. I had been, and I had been mostly gluten-free, mostly sugar-free, very low carb for 3 years at that point. Oh, okay. Um and had that helped? It it had helped overall, but it hadn't helped my brain, obviously. Because okay. yeah, I was yeah. in the hospital. You the break, yeah. <laughs> right. right. So it was, you know, overall my health was better and mm. I'd lost weight, but it hadn't resolved my bipolar. Gotcha. So I, I got this new doctor who put me on the ketogenic diet. Um, that was the about, that was three years ago. So in mid-July 2015, that, that happened. Then six weeks later, I had an appointment with a naturopath. So that was September 2015. And I took my DNA. So I already knew about the MTHFR. I knew about all the genetic stuff, but I took that and I had a billion blood tests done and a billion food sensitivity tests done because my I was my body was in a complete meltdown. Like everything was haywire. Mm. And so I went to see this naturopath. I'd been on the ketogenic diet for six weeks. She put me on the methylated B vitamins, which are critical for anyone with MTHFR because right. we, we do yeah. not have the ability to methylate ourselves. So when you eat B vitamins, you, your body methylates them into a usable form. Mm. People with MTHFR, we can't do that. So I had had a, a severe deficiency in B vitamins my whole life and hadn't known it. So a normal blood test wouldn't show that you had a B vitamin deficiency? Who measures for that? Yeah. It's just, it's not, it's not a normal thing that they do. Of course, when she sent me for all the blood tests, she asked for all of that stuff, but she knew what she was looking for. But I, I don't think I've ever had a normal, regular blood draw where they've looked for 
vitamin and mi- mineral um, levels mm. in your blood. I- I'm lucky. When I went to Ken Berry, he took so many vials of blood <laughs> <laughs> and did all the tests for all the vitamins, right. just about everything. Right. And so and, th- and that's, that, that's, that's a really what, important thing yeah, to do. That, that's what the naturopath did. So, you know, and it literally took them three days to get all the blood they needed from me. Mm. Um, I was on a pincushion. I had 13 holes. I even had <laughs> blood draws taken in my feet because uh. my veins were like, stop. <laughs> so, so we did all the things we found. So we had all the data, the genetic data. Um, and then I was sensitive. I had food sensitivities to virtually everything. Wow. So we took out all the foods I was sensitive to and then took out all the foods that were not ketogenic. And I was left with nine things that I could eat. Oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> And so I ate nine things in rotation. Do you remember for, what they were? For three months. Of course you do. <laughs> <laughs> what were they out of curiosity? So um, one of them, thankfully, was duck. Right? So what was it? Duck, pork, bison, some nuts, but I can't remember which ones. I actually don't remember the nine things yeah. anymore. I've eggs tried were to erase. No eggs. No eggs. I, so eggs was I, I'd eat an egg, and literally two hours later, all the skin on my feet would peel off. Doop. Wow. It was it was bizarre. So my yeah. body, no, no, no. You got to get the non-foot peeling eggs. Those are those are in a special aisle in a special cooler. But when I said my body was in crisis, my body was in crisis. Right. Yeah. yeah, clearly. And so, so I was ketogenic. I was eating nine things, and if you have. So with if, if you have that many food sensitivities, you absolutely know you have leaky gut. Yeah. Um, so my liver was just like, I'm not dealing with any of this. I'm just, I'm not going to work. I'm not going to detox. I'm not going to like all this food. I don't want to deal with any of it. So it's all toxic. It's like a cascade of it was. chain reactions, isn't it? It was. And, and so I rotated and you have to rotate food because if you eat it too often, in a short space of time, then you become sensitive to it. So I had hmm. these nine things on rotation for three months. I had the methylated B vitamins. I had adrenal support. I had a bunch of other. Uh, um, 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 no, I'm not vitamins, minerals, therapies, uh, therapy, just you know supplements, hmm. and and the ketogenic diet. It was six weeks after I, so twelve weeks after I started keto. And it was keto for my brain, so mm. it was heavy duty, like more fat keto, right? Than than more protein keto. It was it was high fat. I started all the the protocols with my naturopath six weeks after that. So six weeks with my naturopath, twelve weeks with my keto doctor. We, my keto doctor said, you can stop your antidepressants. And I was terrified because I'd run out once before and nearly killed myself. Wow. 12 hours later. So, not an exaggeration, I'm sure. Not an exaggeration. Mm. <laughs> um, and so I was terrified. And he said, you can go, mm. go, go cold turkey. I'm confident that, you know, and I'm like, no, 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 wow. no, I'm not doing that. So I took it down to half. Um, and then took it down to half and nothing happened. And I kept waiting for the, for the shoe to drop and right. I was prepared. I had all my friends on speed dial <laughs> and I was like, just in case my brain just went sideways. <laughs> wow. 
But we, we after a week or two, I came off my Lamotrigine. Now, that was two and a half years ago. Wow. I have had, I have zero medications for two and a half years. I've had no pharmaceuticals, and I have had no symptoms of bipolar since. That is amazing. That's just an amazing story, Carrie. This just yeah. so yay me. Let's just let that sink in for a minute, kids. Yay me! I'm still alive. <laughs> so I, I'd like to read out for you uh, the first paragraph from uh, an article in Psychology Today by Dr. George Ead, who's actually going to be speaking at Keto Fest. Uh, on the subject, uh, and she's going to be um, uh, talking about this. But it, the, the article was uh, called Ketogenic Diets for Psychiatric Disorders, a new 2017 review. And her f- opening paragraph is, if you have a brain, you need to know about ketogenic diets. The fact that these specially formulated low-carbohydrate diets have the power to stop seizures in their tracks is concrete evidence that food has a tremendous impact on brain chemistry and should wow. inspire curiosity about how they work. What a great opener. Yeah, absolutely. She says, I first became interested in the ketogenic diets as a potential treatment for bipolar mood disorders, given the many similarities between epilepsy and bipolar disorder. And if I just briefly go down to how uh, she suspects they work, she says, it remains unclear how ketogenic diets work to control seizures let alone how they may improve psychiatric symptoms. On a fundamental level, we're not even sure whether it's the presence of ketones, the reduction in blood sugar, the reduction in insulin and other growth-promoting hormones, or the combination of all these three that are responsible for the brain-stabilizing effects of these diets. Theories abound and include altered neurotransmitter levels, changes in electrolyte gradients, lower intracellular Uh, sodium and calcium, reduction in markers of inflammation, and improved mitochondrial function. The general consensus is that brain functions more cleanly and more efficiently when a significant portion of its energy comes from ketones, calming overactive and overly reactive brain cells. So that's her her hypothesis on on the mechanism. but she'll be speaking at KetoFest, and so um, you, we'll, you'll be, we'll be able to talk to her about that. I am super excited to meet her. I've 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 been following her for a couple of years, and we've exchanged a few emails. And Excellent. I just love her. I'm super super excited to meet her at KetoFest in a in a few weeks. So let's talk about being foodies, all three of us, <laughs> and especially you. Yeah, we went a long time in this interview without talking about keto. So, so <laughs> people who listen to us probably don't know who you are, but you're quite famous in the keto world. So, so tell us about that. So, I so several years ago, uh, how many years ago? Seven, six years ago, I started uh, writing recipes. Oh no, I should back up. I'm a pastry chef by trade. What? <laughs> <laughs> So Which can this you show is, me uh, how to make a croissant that's ketogenic? Uh, yes. Because I miss, so, I miss croissants. Uh, so, yeah, me too. Uh. But let's not talk about croissants. No. Um, yeah. the, the good thing about about croissants is that, sorry, America, the best ones yeah. are in France. And so yeah. I don't have a problem staying Sweet. away from them here because I know I'll be disappointed because I'm used to yes. eating the ones in France. <laughs> right. So They're that great. made it easy for me. Um, it's the same oh, as bagels. Unless you've had a bagel in New York, you haven't really had a bagel. Right. Um, oh, Forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I must just throw in that that 
my I crave uh, wheat, mm. and and so getting the confirmation in my genes that I have a genetic um, issue with gluten that I have an intolerance to gluten genetically. Mm. Right. Stopped. I mean, I'm like, there is nothing on this earth that will make me. I mean, I don't have yeah. to control myself anymore when it comes to wheat. If so, mm. that was awesome. So Having you never this, crave it anymore. I crave it, but I just mentally, yeah. I, I'm never. Before when I craved it, sometimes I'd be like, you know, oh whatever, right? right. Oh, I'm just gonna have that. Right. I've earned it. Yeah. Having a clear diagnosis from my genetics saying you cannot do this can't process it changed mm. everything yeah. so that made the whole wheat thing much much easier to deal with interesting i mean it's almost like that that you're you won't go on a diet until your doctor tells you when your doctor tells you it's just like okay i'm gonna do it now right it's just like having that that third party tell you you really can't do this but you've always been a foodie and so you transferred your passion into keto food right it's just, it's just it's just very funny to me that i'm a pastry chef by trade yeah. and and so <laughs> i spent years so i trained at the national bakery school in london which is part of the university of the south bank and mm -hmm. i spent literally my life wallowing in flour and sugar right. i used to eat sugar paste for lunch right mm. Because, I don't know what it is, uh, but it sounds sweet. Well, it's, yeah. the, it, it's the fondant that they use to cover cakes oh, fondant, in. Yeah. And, Tyson, like fondant. Sugar. Yeah. yeah, it's just sugar. I spent, you know, my late teens, early 20s, mid 20s. When I worked in, when I lived in Perth, Australia, I was a pastry chef. So for 10 years of my life, I literally lived on sugar. Wow. And yeah. I was 98 pounds soaking wet and... You don't notice the symptoms because there's something you've lived with your whole life. You right. just think it's normal. You just and, like and you're on a slow march towards a chronic disease, right. not something that's just going to happen one day. Now I know what I know. It's like I don't mm. even know how I'm alive. Hmm. Like I abused my body so badly, completely not understanding or not knowing. Yeah. But I abused it so badly. It's amazing that I survived that. But. So that's that's my where I came from, and then six years ago I was in. I read Gary Taub's "Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It" because I, I I suddenly woke up and went, "I'm not 98 pounds soaking wet anymore." And whose body is that? Because like <laughs> like wait, where did that extra weight come from? Mm. And it didn't. It seemed to be that no matter what I did, the weight didn't change. I, nothing, it didn't matter. I could do slim fast for two weeks mm. and I wouldn't Ugh. lose a pound. I, I mean, like nothing helped. Yeah. And I, then I, I did slim fast for like a year and that, that, that tipped me over the edge into prediabetes. But yeah. I fortunately loved real food too much to do <laughs> slim fast for more <laughs> I, than a I day still, or two. I still love real food, but my doctor told me to do slim fast. My, oh. my doctor told me to do slim fast because I went yeah. to him and I, say, I said, I cannot lose weight. I've done yeah. this, 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 I this, this. And he said, he said, it's thermodynamics, calories in, calories yes. out. I'm like, I've yeah. proved it isn't. <laughs> he said, look, go away, drink slim fast for two, week, two weeks, two slim fast a day. That's it, 480 calories a day. You'll come back 10 pounds lighter and you'll be back in control. 
I did exactly what he told me and I exercised just the same. I did exactly what he told me. Two weeks later, I hadn't lost a pound. And, and he said, metabolic rate had dropped. Right. But he said, it's thermodynamics. It's calories in, calories out. <laughs> I'm nuts. like, what? You're fired. And, and, and so, <laughs> like, even my cat understands it cannot be calories in, calories out. <laughs> I've just proved it. So I read, then I found in desperation, as a lot of, I can't speak for guys because I'm not one, but there's a lot of us women who are just like, we wake up one day and it's like, I don't know what the hell happened, but my body didn't look like that and now it does and I don't know how it got here because I haven't done anything different, but all of a sudden I've got this extra weight. Right, yeah. And, and so in desperation, because I've always been tiny, I have a tiny frame, I, I my parents were small, boned, so any extra weight, is seems like mountains on on a small frame, and I've never been very overweight. I mean, I was I don't know maybe twenty pounds overweight, um, but that were, for me was so different, and it really really bugged me. So I read Gary Taubes, mm -hmm. and that was like the light bulb moment. And yeah. so I started doing. Uh, I got rid of the carbs or the, the starchy, sugary carbs, immediately lost 10 pounds in like three days. Mm. Like my muffin top just melted and I was like, what in the world? But that's where it stopped because I was still eating a huge amount of fruit and vegetables, even right. though I right. wasn't eating any of the what we typically call carbs. Yeah, the white um, the, foods. Right. I, I, I stopped all of that and started eating a lot more fat and more protein, but I was still eating a lot of veggies and and non-starchy ones too, like any veggies. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, but I started blogging. I started blogging recipes that were low carb. So that was six years ago. And then I moved into keto. And then by that point, I had quite a following and people were asking me to produce cookbooks Right. Uh, that was never my my goal. This was never meant to be something that that supported me, that was revenue generating. I was just doing it, one, because I loved it, and two, because I wanted to help people. Yeah. Um, because I'd suddenly found this way to lose weight, seemingly magically. So people asked me to write cookbooks. So I started um, writing by then keto cookbooks to help people. And and now that's what I do. So I I Brian Williamson from the Keto Evangelist reached out to me all oh, eighteen twenty months ago, and he'd found me on Twitter or somewhere, and and invited me to come on the Keto Evangelist podcast as a guest, and I did. And apparently, people really liked my accent. I think yeah. that's the only reason. But um, people, so so two weeks after the the uh, it's that the, it's episode, the one year in Australia that you spent. <laughs> I, I can tell that's improved your right. accent out of sight. <laughs> My accent is a bit confused because I've lived in all, in all the it's, places. It's adorable. <laughs> yeah, it is. Just so, say that right there. Uh, a, a couple of uh, weeks after that episode aired, where I was a guest, Brian reached out to me again and said, "Hey, like people love you, and and you have this great story, and you make the best keto ice cream any, anywhere. <laughs> and um, do you want to collaborate?" He said, because I'm, you know, I, I need a food person and I'd, I'd love it to be you. What can we do together? So, and I was still in a full-time day job and 
And uh, Carl will understand when I say Microsoft that that's not just a full time day job. That's no, you like, have to drink the Kool Aid, uh, right? That's <laughs> no, like yeah. six, sixty hours a week, and and yet you know. And so my my mouth was going, yeah, sure, I'll do that, and my head was going, <laughs> shut up, like when are you going to do this? And and so he said, well, let let's start a a website. Let's start a rep, re- recipe website. Let's do a a food podcast in addition to mine. Let's do a food podcast uh, about keto, and let's start a new Facebook group, and let's do all the things. And all I'm right. like, yes. My brain's like, no, yes, no. <laughs> anyway, so, apparently my big mouth won that war, and so Jan- and it's hugely popular. <laughs> Let's January 18 months ago, so yeah, a year and a half ago, we launched the Keto Evangelist Kitchen podcast, website, uh, Facebook group, all the things. Yeah. And then I really ramped up the the keto cookbooks because there was just such a, a demand for them. Yeah. I'm, I'm self-published. So far, I'm self, self-published. Um, and, and so that's what I've been doing ever since. Now, then a year ago, Microsoft, bless their hearts, uh, relieved me of my duties. Well, and we should say not just you, <laughs> no, a lot of people. There was, uh, got, yeah, so on that particular day, out. Uh, three, yeah, me and 2,999 of my colleagues were relieved of our duties. Um, we were apparently surplus to requirements. Um, and that was, that's, I would not be in Connecticut if that hadn't happened. That was the single best thing that could have happened to me since I got my DNA data. And by the way, I need to tell everybody that I don't work for Microsoft. People are always asking me, yeah, you work for Microsoft, right? No, I'm a software developer. They're a customer of mine, but I've never, mm-hmm. ever been a blue badge. That's yeah. what they call I've been, uh, I, I ran a software company that uh, was a major partner of Microsoft, so... Uh, I had a little bit of experience with uh, their foibles, yeah. but yeah. So I, you know I'm the crazy. I, yeah, I do. <laughs> we know the crazy, the political correctness, the yeah. all of that stuff. Right. So mm-hmm. anyway, so them laying me off was actually, I mean, for three days, I was like, because as I say, I'm single. I have no other means of support. So for three days, I was like in this like dead panic, like my life is about to end. But you've had a few marriage proposals in the last year and a half. <laughs> <laughs> She's blushing. But so so when that happened, uh, it was actually the single best thing that could ever have happened to me. Funny how that works out that way. After I got my DNA, because Microsoft, this this is maybe TMI, but Microsoft essentially, because I'd been there a long time, so Microsoft essentially gave me six months PTO. It's nice, and Mm. said, but you don't need to come in. So um, mm. I was working with Brian, and and we also Brian has another partner, Danny Vega, who mm-hmm. I call mm-hmm. the Mountain of Meat because he's <laughs> his body is ridiculous. He's the ketogenic mm-hmm. athlete. Yeah. Um, yes. And so I, they said to me, you, you know, you've got six months to see if you can make this work because you've got a buffer of six months' money now. You've got six months to see if you can make sure. this work. Um, with your cookbooks generating revenue so that you don't have to go to a day job so you can pour all of your passion and all of your time into helping people with with mental health issues right. which is which is where my real interest lies sure you know i want other people to experience the absolutely life-changing um things that i have since i've been keto and and you know since i got my 
epigenetics done. Mm. So three months later, Brian and Danny and I launched what we call Keto Evangelist Unlimited, which is a membership site for people who really want, one, they want that community, and two, they want to really, really dial up the keto. Um, So we did that. And then at the end of November, I realized that I could get rid of my mortgage and, you know, reduce my outgoings to the minimum amount just by moving to Connecticut. So I did that. And now here I am. And here you are. What a great story. We didn't even talk about recipes yet. Right. <laughs> I mean, what's, you're, you're known for your ice cream. What's your, what's your second most famous recipe, you think? Oh. Is uh, ice cream oh. number one, first of all? I, I am. I have become known in our Facebook group. Um, I, I am known, the keto ice cream. And yeah, it does taste like, it acts like, it scoops like, you know, premium Haagen-Dazs, Ben & Jerry's. That's what it's like. Mm. Um, nice. A lot of people have said that it's the best ice cream they've ever had, keto or not. Mm. So, and I, I tried very hard to formulate the recipe so that it would be super easy because I, my goal is to make people realize that keto is more delicious than the sad American right. diet that they came from, yeah. that yeah, they're not restricted, <laughs> that they're not restricted, that they can have all the things right. if they find a good recipe. But I, I want to make it as accessible to everybody. So I formulated the recipes so that they would be super, super easy for even people who are not cooks and mm. don't want to go to Cordon Bleu to learn how to make egg custards. Right. So <laughs> I, I made the recipes super easy so that anyone could do them and be successful. Well, we're going to have links to your recipes and might even do one of these uh, or two of these on the show. So Uh-oh. thank yeah. you for everything that you do. I, I, and especially the, you know, the, the bipolar story is just awe inspiring. And uh, I know that you've touched a lot of people uh, in your podcast and your near talks. And now we're hoping to bring that message to our audience as well. The other thing that I'm, that I'm famous for, I, I got sidetracked by ice cream. Um, <laughs> the most popular recipe on the blog is the sour cream and chive biscuits, Ooh. which are just un- unbelievably popular. Wow. And there's a lot of people who say that they are the best bread item that they have found on keto. So whether awesome. that's it's true for them. Whether that's I, I I never believe in the whole best thing is like if you haven't tried everyone in the whole world, then mm. you, you can't ever use the word best. So I'm well, not I'm not a fan of the best. If you word, qualify but, it for me, then you can say <laughs> right, that. Right, yeah. right. So a lot of people say that for them, that's yeah. the best bread thing. So though, I ice cream and my sour cream and chive biscuits would be the the two things that people awesome. seem to love me the most for. Carrie Brown, thank you so much for sharing this with us. You're very welcome. It's um, I'm honored. It's taken me a long time to reach out for you because I'm really shy. <laughs> <laughs> I never know. It took me moving to Connecticut and like a thousand people in my Facebook group saying, hello, you live in Connecticut. You're half an hour from Carl. Why haven't you reached out to him? Like, what is wrong with you? Uh, how much fun? Heard you say you're due for a little Wow, that is that. What a story! I I just don't know what to say. 
It's it's so hard, and, and the, the stigma against people with mental illness is real, and we all have this bias. We think people can just snap out of it, but their brains are working against them. It was such a fascinating conversation, we really had to split it into two episodes. Yeah. Yep. Well, we'll be back next week with the rest of Carrie's story. Mm, and yes. uh I, I think you know where it's going. It's gonna it's 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 a happy ending. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well are you Speaking packing of happy endings? Let's eat some food. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's make some recipes. What you got, Cal? Ah, this is uh, something I'm doing for the VIP party at Keto Fest nice. this weekend. It's lobster bisque. Mm, yeah. So this lobster bisque recipe is a little bit famous. And it's a little bit famous because Mr. Bobby Flay makes this. Right. However, he didn't come up with the recipe. Okay. A new Londoner came up with the recipe. No. So it's a local recipe. It's a local recipe. It has been made in my house by the guy whose recipe it is. Right. And stolen right. by Bobby Flay. <laughs> well, no. So here's Borrowed the story. creatively. <laughs> yeah. Here's the story. Uh, Billy Bork mm-hmm. owned the Bank Street Lobster House, which uh, is right across from Daddy Jack's on Bank Street. Now it's called mm-hmm. Fat Boys. Hasn't mm-hmm. been the Bank Street Lobster House for a long time. Okay. Billy has been, um, you know, a citizen in New London for years and years. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually sold me uh, an electric guitar, a Gibson Les Paul that I still use to this day, wow. when I was 15 years old. <laughs> and uh, so he had this recipe, the Bank Street Lobster House, and he made it onto the Food Network. Bobby Flay okay. actually came to New London and filmed an episode of The Best Of. Right. which was the name of the show. Mm-hmm. And they had Billy out uh, on the the lawn making lobster bisque with Bobby Flay. And nice. it is still, to this day, Bobby Flay's definitive uh, lobster bisque recipe. Well, it's the best of, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> um, the original recipe, we'll, we'll put a link to that. And I'll mm-hmm. also put a, a link to the recipe on our blog, which has been ketified. So... The original recipe calls for onions and carrots and a, a cup and a half of tomato paste and cornstarch. What mm. I did is I omitted the onions and carrots yep. and I took out a half a cup of the tomato paste because you don't need mm. all that much. Yep. And I added some tarragon mm-hmm. and replaced the cornstarch, a quarter cup of cornstarch, with one tablespoon of xanthan gum. So it takes three and a half hours and makes about 20 servings. Nice. So tomato paste-wise, that's about, uh, you know, what, a tablespoon or less than a tablespoon per serving? Yeah, sure. All right. Here's the ingredients. You need four (laughs) one-and-a-half-pound lobsters. Mm, (laughs) Lobsters. (laughs) Lobsters. Yeah. Main lobsters if you can get them. You want a cup of tomato paste. Mm -hmm. You want a cup and a half of coarsely chopped celery, including the leaves. Yep. A sprig of thyme, two sprigs of tarragon, Three sprigs of flat leaf parsley, plus a little extra for garnish. A half a teaspoon of saffron. Oh, saffron. Very expensive ingredient. Yeah, one of my chef buddies says of saffron, use it like you stole the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, admittedly, if you don't have saffron, it's not going to kill the recipe. So, it just makes it a little nicer. Yeah, but don't be weak in, in your dose of saffron. 
Yeah. Put it in, you know, use it like you stole it. <laughs> All right. Uh, six cups of heavy cream, mm-hmm. one cup of cream sherry, or I would actually use a dry sherry. Yeah. Because uh, cream sherry is a little sweet. Mm-hmm. Uh, two tablespoons of freshly ground black pepper and one tablespoon of xanthan gum. So here's what you do. You fill a large stock pot with water and bring it to a boil. And there mm-hmm. should be enough water to cover the lobsters completely when immersed. So you place the live lobsters in the boiling water head first to minimize splashing. And when the water reboils, you turn down the heat and simmer for 20 minutes. You don't want to overcook the lobsters. So you remove the lobsters from the pot using tongs. And if you can put them in an ice bath, that would be great because that Mm -hmm. stops the cooking process. But you want to save all the water in the stock pot because that's where your stock is going to come from. Yeah. So you take 10 cups of stock, put it in a clean stock pot, and put it on low heat. You clean the claws and the tails of the lobsters and take out Mm -hmm. the meat, the legs and the swimmerettes and all that. Mm -hmm. And after the lobsters are clean, you put the shells back in the stock pot with the 10 cups of stock. You cut the bodies in quarters and place those in the stock pot, making sure to include all the roe and tamale. Mm. That's the the guts, right? Yeah, the brains. That's the flavor. Yeah. Yeah. So add the tomato paste and simmer that on low heat for one and a half hours, stirring occasionally. So that's where you're reducing, right? You're taking mm. stock and you're reducing it down. Yeah, concentrating the flavor. Yeah. So be careful not to have the heat so high as it burns. Now you want to pour the entire contents of the pot through a sieve into a clean stock pot. And that should be about eight cups of wonderful lobster stock. Mm, nice. Now you place the celery, thyme, parsley, tarragon, and saffron in a large saute pan. You add four cups of stock from the original pot Mm -hmm. and put on high heat for 30 minutes, stirring every five minutes. You add black pepper, turn down the heat, simmer for another 30 minutes, stirring every five minutes. And you press the entire contents of the saute pan through the sieve into the stock pot of eight cups of previously made stock. Now to finish it, you put it on medium heat the pot at you add mm-hmm. heavy cream slowly using a whisk to blend it add the sherry simmer it on low heat for 20 minutes and the bisque will thicken slightly now here's the key with with xanthan gum you want to remove it from the heat for 10 minutes and let it cool you sprinkle in the xanthan gum while whisking vigorously no clumps if it's right. too hot it'll clump and if you pour in too much at a time it'll clump you want to sprinkle it Then you bring it back to a boil and immediately turn it down to low. You only want it to boil to to get that xanthan gum thick. Mm -hmm. And then you simmer on low heat for another 20 minutes. You take all the cleaned lobster meat and add a cup of bisque. So for each serving, you take, you know, a 20th of the lobster meat, put Mm -hmm. that in a bowl, add a cup of the bisque on top of that, then you garnish with the legs and swimmerettes around the bowl if you want. And mm-hmm. a parsley leaf in the center. And that's your ketoized Billy Bork Bobby Flay Lobster Bisque, which nice. has its origins right here in New London, Connecticut. Billy Bork Bobby Flay Carl Franklin Lobster <laughs> <That's> Bisque. <right. laughs> I think we should give it its proper name. <laughs> okay. All right. So, what do you okay. got? Well, I'm going to actually use one of Carrie Brown's recipes because she's actually been known for her ice cream recipe. And this oh, yeah. recipe is Carrie Brown's. Peanut butter ice cream. Awesome. So this recipe serves between 10 to 12 people, and it basically starts off with two cups of hemp 
milk. Now, you might find that difficult to find. You can probably use other nut milks, but for the authentic recipe, you want to try and get hemp milk. Okay. Uh, you have three quarters of a cup of smooth, natural, unsweetened peanut butter. Yeah. Here's one tip. When you're in the store comparing peanut butters, look at the nutrient information and compare yes. which one has the lowest carbohydrate per 100 grams. And if you don't yep. get the column that says per 100 grams, you're going to have to do a little bit of math. But right. you want to make sure if, if all of the peanut butters have the same serving size, get the one with the lowest carbohydrates. Yes. So also in this recipe is going to be a sweetener. Now, Carrie uses xylitol, and she says accept no substitutes. Um she mm. uses six and, a, and a one quarter ounces or roughly 175 grams of xylitol. Now, xylitol is a natural sweetener that we get from hardwood bark. Uh, yep. It's also found in grapes. One of the problems and one of the reasons why I personally don't have it in my house is because it's very poisonous to dogs. What it does is it causes them to overproduce insulin and go into a coma and die. So it's yes, very dangerous it's for good. dogs. Here's another thing about xylitol is that if you're not used to it, you've never had it before, mm -hmm. or if you're not fat adapted, you can expect some serious gut distress. But as you get fat adapted, um, you can tolerate it more. I happen to think it's the best sweetener. Right. I have It gives me a funny reaction, and maybe it's because I don't have it a lot because I, I have dogs in the house, but when we were in Breckenridge that time and you made chocolate mousse with it, I had yeah. a really funny reaction to it. Um, yeah, yeah. One of the interesting things about xylitol is it's really good for your dental caries. Um, yes. It helps you remineralize the enamel on your teeth. So yeah. that's one useful thing. Anyway, so uh, half a teaspoon of sea salt. Uh, now, salt's really important for these kinds of recipes, oh, yeah. especially with peanut butter. You want, you want, it, uh, you want that salt because that improves the, the flavor. Um, mm -hmm. Half a cup of heavy cream uh, or roughly four fluid ounces. Um, you want a quarter of a teaspoon of vanilla extract and you want half a teaspoon of guar gum and again yeah. the guar gum is just a thickener it's a thickener that doesn't use gelling agents like star starches and just for the record xanthan gum is typically used in hot dishes guar mm. gum is typically used in cold or frozen foods so you put the hemp milk peanut butter xylitol sea salt cream and vanilla extract into a blender and you basically blend it for 10 seconds you want to get wow. it well mixed and then you turn the blender to slow speed or low speed and while the blender is running you add the guar gum by tapping it through the opening in the lid and blend it for 30 seconds and try it again and you're basically getting it to a, th a thicker consistency um you're making a custard, and so you're then going to pour this ice cream custard into a bowl or jar and you're going to cover it and place it in the fridge for at least eight hours preferably mm. overnight mm. um and carrie says don't skip the chilling no matter what type of uh, churner you have get it cold because the whole yeah. point of an ice cream churner is to to get it to turn to ice cream as quickly as you possibly can so right. you want to bring its temperature down um as much as you can without developing ice crystals and then throw it in the yeah that, that's what alton brown says about premium ice cream he says you have to chill it uh to to get those crystals and bubbles small Right. So that when you freeze it, it doesn't turn into, yeah, chalky yeah, stuff. Icicles. Yeah, icicles. Icicles, yeah. So take your custard that's chilled out of the fridge and give it a good stir to make sure it's completely mixed. Now, you want to freeze the custard in your churner according to your manufacturer's instructions. And it typically takes between 15 to 20 minutes to freeze uh, fridge-cooled 
uh, custard to a soft mm-hmm. serve consistency. And once your ice cream is frozen to a soft serve consistency, quickly transfer it from the churning bowl into your pre-chilled container, cover it, place it in the freezer for at least eight hours, preferably overnight, and you've got yes. peanut butter ice cream. Now, I would actually add one point. I would use allulose instead of xylitol. This is something we used in Breckenridge, uh, yep. and that works quite well. Um, yep. So I would, I would, if if you have dogs and you don't feel comfortable having xylitol in the house, um, which is my situation, I would try allulose. That could be a, a viable alternative. Did she say that hemp milk was substitutable for other things? Why hemp milk? Um, I'm not sure why she chose hemp milk, but she has a bank of testers who tell yeah. her she's basically doing A-B comparisons, and she okay. says that this is the one that had the best uh, response with uh, the peanut butter ice cream. So, wow, she, that's awesome. And she is the ice cream whisperer. She yeah, is known for right. her ice cream <laughs> recipe. So that's the thing about recipes. You know, Anyone can come up with a recipe that they can do uh, but nobody else can do, but Carrie Brown is very good at coming up with recipes that work for Everybody and she has a she has an entire cookbook on ice cream recipes. So yep, she she is the keto ice cream whisperer. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, that's the show. I think uh, let's uh, get ready for Keto Fest. I'm going to see you in a couple of days. Yeah, very soon. Of course, if you have anything you want to tell us, something we said wrong, something you don't agree with, some more research you found to support or refute anything that we've said, send it by email to dudes at twoketodudes.com or post it on our website. And you can follow us on Twitter, Twitch, YouTube, and Instagram at 2KetoDudes. And make sure to use the hashtag 2KetoDudes. And of course, if you want to join the free ketogenic forum, it's forum.2keto.com. And you can have a look around the forum without needing to create an account by just starting with success.2keto.com. And if useless swag is your fancy, you know, t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other junk with witty keto sayings on them, head over to gear.2keto.com. And if you want a shot at getting some of that swag for free, join the Two Keto Dudes fan club. You'll be eligible to win something in every show. Go to fanclub.2keto.com. And if you feel like supporting our forums and all the podcasts we produce, think about making a monthly pledge on our Patreon page at patreon.2keto.com. You can also see all of our podcasts and other videos on YouTube at youtube.2keto.com and check out Carl's cooking videos at carlsketokitchen.com. And if you haven't already, go leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That's how new people get to know about what we do. Two Keto Dudes is brought to you by Two Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. Richard, my friend, keep calm, keto on, and fast when you can. Yeah, Carl, keep calm, keto on, and fly to Keto Fest at least once a year. <laughs> yes. Uh, all right. We'll see you next time on Two Keto Dudes.